Welcome to Conversations with Future Generation. I'm Louise Walsh, CEO of the impact investing companies Future Generation Australia and Future Generation Global. In this series, we explore the worlds of investing, philanthropy, mental health, and supporting children and youth at risk with amazing Australians who are leading the way. Joining us today is Armina Rosenberg. Armina is the Global Equities Portfolio Manager at Grok Ventures, the family office established by Atlassian co-founder Mike Cannon-Brooks and his wife. Armina grew up in Sydney's West and went to Sydney Girls High before beginning her career at UBS as an intern. Armina then joined Grok Ventures from JP Morgan after a seven-year tenure. Welcome, Armina. Thank you. Great to be here. Just to kickstart the, the conversation and the questions, can you tell us a bit about your career journey so far? And I know you're only young, but you, you've achieved <laughs> quite a bit already. Yeah, and I think I might give you, I guess, the semi-longer version because I think context is helpful to knowing how people develop their mental models. Um, so my mum found herself in Australia as an immigrant single mother from a third world country, being Indonesia, and she raised three children uh, and tried to make enough to support us. Uh, we grew up in Housing Commission in Wentworthville, which is two stops past Parramatta on the train line. Um, and just to warn you, um, I don't mince words when I talk about my childhood. Um, so housos, as we Aussies affectionately term them, they're pretty awful. <laughs> the way ours was set out was that you have four townhouses effectively grouped together looking inwards into each other. And our townhouse was across the road from a drug dealer next to a drug addict and diagonal to a townhouse where I could uh, hear the screams of a mother getting beaten in front of her children. I could even hear her son trying to defend her sometimes and copying it himself. And it used to get so bad that we'd call the cops on them a few times, but usually took the approach of staying out of it, which always made me feel really terrible about not doing enough, even at a young age. Um, I tell you that detail not to impress you, but to impress upon you that the hardships uh, that can be faced by some people in this country can be pretty tough, even in this lucky country. Um, and as a result of all that, I aspired to do two things. Uh, firstly, get out and make sure myself and my family never have to live that sort of life again. And secondly, try and change things for the better and inspire others to do the same. Uh, so as a kid, um, my mother's boyfriend at the time was kind of my first mentor in life. He was a university lecturer and he'd do things like cut out newspaper articles and ask me questions on the subject matter when I was seven years old. Uh, <laughs> he said to me, you don't have money, so intelligence has to be your currency. And I really took that to heart. Um, so I studied super hard and, as you said in the intro, got into Sydney Girls High School and that's where I became interested in commerce and finance. And I remember there was two types of share market competitions. There was one where you bought and sold and actively traded during a certain period. And there was one called the portfolio competition where you bought and held a portfolio over a certain period and didn't trade. And I was actually much better at that second one. Um, I then got what's called a co-op scholarship at the University of New South Wales. And that entailed working at sponsors of the scholarship, which were predominantly investment banks. Uh, I actually did the first finance co-op scholarship. I think Mike actually did the computer science one. Um, the scholarship was great because I got to work in investment banks as part of it and it gave me a foot in the door. So I did internships at Avian Amaro, the ASX and UBS. And I actually did my first placement in equities research covering the insurance sector and loved it. And I thought if I can love equities research covering insurance stocks, then I can surely like it in any sector. Um, so I joined JP Morgan Equities Research out of uni and in 2008 during the GFC 
I was deemed too cheap to fire, but management cut a little too deeply anyway. And I found myself the junior across three teams, equity strategy, real estate, and small caps. And it was tough being split across the three, but it was actually such a great foundation for being a generalist as I got a good range of experience and learned from some of the best in the industry there. Um, Mm. And at one point, the whole small caps team left JP Morgan and they wanted to rebuild it. So not being one to wait for opportunities, I pretty much marched into the office of the head of research and made the case for why I should be given a role in the new small caps team as a lead analyst. And I was 24 years old at the time. And this was right at the start of the kind of trend towards juniorization of lead analyst roles. So I was pretty young for the industry. Um, And I later found out that management decided to let me do it as they figured I'd either sink or swim. Um, And lucky for me, I ended up swimming and swimming pretty well. And I loved the sell side, but I always wanted to work on the buy side. And the way I met Mike was through a portfolio manager named Thomas Rice, who runs uh, the Global Innovation Fund at Perpetual and was actually one of the first Australian investors to actually know what Atlassian does um, and had a huge interest in, in tech. So he had formed a relationship with Mike and Jeremy, who is the CEO of Grok Ventures. And Jeremy and Mike had a chat to me. And uh, yeah, that's how I landed the job as Global Portfolio Manager at, uh, at Grok Ventures. Some would say, what an amazing journey so far. And you know, it sounds like a dream job to me. What does your typical day look like in, in this role? Like it really is the dream job at Grok Ventures. Um, I don't know where else I could do what I love, which is investing in stock picking, but also be working at a place which aligns in values to me and is actively trying to make the world a better place. Um, I have a broad watch list of stocks that I find interesting and then a list of stocks that I'm doing more immediate work on. So my days are filled with doing preliminary due diligence on things we don't own and monitoring of things we do. Uh, I speak to management teams and investor relations, as well as anyone who can give me insights across the whole value chain, you know, including suppliers, competitors, customers, employees. Um, As an example, tomorrow I'm meeting with a guy who has made a fortune being a YouTube influencer and gamer, um, which will be hopefully pretty interesting. I'm, I'm sure it will be. Um, And I think his insight could be as far reaching as implications for Amazon's gaming platform, Twitch, or obviously YouTube, or other ad monetization platform companies generally, um, like Facebook. Um, I've also built a great close knit network of people who I call uh, affectionately my inner circle, uh, who I bounce ideas off and who give me ideas. That's um, predominantly a bunch of men and women in other family offices or funds who I knew from JP Morgan days or I've gotten to know by virtue of venture capital circles or software circles. Um, I consider them to be some of the most savvy tech and software investors in Australia. So I I meet with them on a pretty regular basis to shoot the breeze. Are they one-on-one meetings or any of them, do you do any of them as group or how does that sort of work? Yeah, we've actually often like toyed with the idea of doing a kind of ideas dinner, like sort of like a what you see on Billions type thing. Um, (laughs) We haven't actually done one yet. I tend to meet with them one-on-one. I live in Bronte, so I do this thing where I I take um, either a fundy or um, just someone from the industry on the coastal walk and ah. um, kind of talk about things for an hour. Actually, people say I should record them as a podcast, like like much like this. <laughs> Sounds like a good one. Yeah. Good one. Given you've focused on tech and the significant valuations in that space, I mean, how do you sort the pretenders from the companies that are the real deal? Because there must be so many pretenders out there. Yeah, I think um, I might take a step back and, and talk about how we frame 
um, thinking around investing at Grok. Um, so we kind of think about it like if you picture a Venn diagram with three overlapping circles, we want to invest where three things come together. The first is what we're interested in and passionate about. The second is where we might have insight or advantage that the general investment community might not have. And the third is, you know, what will generate strong financial returns, as, as you'd expect. And so where those three kind of overlap or come together uh, most naturally is software, as we have been sp- speaking about, and I guess renewable energy to some extent. We've become really, I'd say, subject matter experts at renewable energy across our team. And I guess the second circle, that that insight or advantage that the general investment community might not have, I'd say that's where we're better at sorting the pretenders from the real companies, particularly in software, because of that network that I spoke about earlier of, you know, having, um, I guess, access to developers and founders and people who actually use the software. I think sometimes, and particularly in Australia, because it's such a nascent industry and, you know, if you look at the ASX tech sector, it's nowhere near as developed as the global tech sector or particularly the US tech sector. Um, and so the familiarity with the business models that we're looking at is just not there for an Aussie investor as it is a global investor. And then when you add to the fact that Mike is who he is uh, and can, I guess, maybe look at a company and and know or even has heard of or is maybe even a customer of a company that we're looking at, uh, I think that's a real secret source that we can tap into. What impact has COVID had on the uh, portfolio there? I think because we've been in software, many of our companies have been COVID-related beneficiaries. We were already highly leveraged to collaborative software plays and e-commerce companies. And, you know, I'd like to say that's the benefit of foresight, but, you know, there was definitely some luck involved um, in that as well. Um, You know, as an example, we've been an investor in Zoom since IPO, which obviously has, you know, done way better than expected in a short amount of time. Um, and gone from being, I think, like an unknown to to being a verb, like people talk about Zooming people now. Um, <laughs> and it's actually one of my favourite companies for a number of reasons. Like I think Eric Yuan at Zoom is one of the best founders I've ever come across. Everyone thought that video conferencing was commoditized, and to a large extent it was. But Eric saw all the challenges people had with existing options given he worked at WebEx. So he knew that Zoom's unique selling proposition had to be its technology um, I could go into Zoom if you want me to. Let's face it, it's it's on everyone's lips. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I'd love to say that it was just a brilliant stock call for me, but it obviously um, has has done like way better than expected. But um, in, I think people will find it hard to understand, you know, why Zoom or why it works so well. And in layman's terms, and I don't have a tech background, so I'm definitely the definition of a laywoman, um, most video conferencing options were coded in what's called AVC or advanced video coding, but Zoom's architecture was built to be scalable um, in what's called SVC, which is scalable video coding. And he did that from the start, which, again, probably luck, but um, that's why it's worked so well. Um, you know, if, so the way that it works is if my bandwidth is much lower than your bandwidth, then Um, And I'm not using the right nomenclature here, but what basically happens is the bandwidths mix together to be efficient and send multiple resolutions down the line versus other options, which kind of remix it in the cloud and switch and route. So it takes a a longer time. And and, um, I think 
it just basically means Zoom was built to be more scalable from the beginning and it shows like I'm probably on at least 20 Zoom calls a week and very rarely does it break for me. Um, and another thing that I liked about uh, Eric at Zoom is, you know, when Zoom came under fire for security concerns, uh, Eric owned it and he apologized. And then he set about trying to fix it straight away. So, you know, he froze feature development for 90 days. Uh, he created a security council with VMware. I think he got Alex Stamos, the former chief security officer of Facebook, to be an external consultant. So that's kind of, I mean, we're very bullish Zoom. Even now, like, I do get a lot of questions on do you still like it um, at, you know, these levels that they're trading at, which, you know, are exorbitant. And I can get into to tech valuations at some point. But, um, the, like, the answer is we still see a lot of, of runway with Zoom. And are there any other investments that you like at the moment or sectors that you're particularly keen on? I think um, I might actually just address the tech valuation question now, hmm. actually. Um, so I like to do this reverse analysis where you think about what assumptions need to be made, particularly about revenue growth and, and total addressable market penetration in order for a stock to generate a certain level of IRR. So we look at, we try to aim for about 20% um, internal rates of return. So what that means is we look at where current share price levels are trading, project forward to get to a 20% IRR and arrive at a future EV or enterprise value. And then we assume an exit multiple that is generally about six to eight times EV to sales adjusted for gross margin differences or stage of business maturity. And that what that does is generate an implied sales CAGR for the next five years. So what forecast you'd need to have for sales growth for the next five years, which we can compare to history or an assumption of penetrating that total addressable market to deem if it's realistic or not. And so some of the ideas that have come out of that analysis and also from discussions with the Inner Circle Network that I was talking about um, is Slack. So Slack's a kind of messaging system, kind of similar to WhatsApp, but more um, kind of geared towards workplaces and brings together employees, application and data into, uh, I guess, customizable workspaces that we call channels um, and provides a platform to collaborate and communicate. And the company has some of the strongest kind of unit economics of any SaaS players out there that I've seen um, with like sort of 87% gross margins and net dollar-based retention rates kind of above 130%. The biggest hesitation for most investors on Slack is competition, but I think the fears of Microsoft and Google out-competing them are overblown and I rate the founder and CEO Stuart to navigate the challenges. And what I've found with SaaS companies is good management um, knows how to grow and expand their TAM, their total addressable market. Um, and as an example of that, you know, Slack has started Slack Connect, which now drives 25% of their sales and basically allows companies um, to connect with each other. So I can connect to a company outside of my organization using Slack. And so I think there's enough white space for Slack to exist with Microsoft and Google. With the tech valuations generally, are comparisons to the tech bubble unfair given how important tech is to everything we do today? Yeah, look, I think so. I think that um, unlike the tech bubble, there are a lot of companies today actually generating you know, solid cash flows or have a basis or a runway that you can see where they get to achieving those, those cash flows. Um, I think one of the things that people find really hard about software or particularly software as a service companies is that they are kind of paying a lot to generate revenue growth today. And so there are a lot of questions around, 
Like, you know, when will they start actually generating a kind of a sustainable margin? So I think that's what investors grapple a lot with. Um, but you've seen that kind of play out or borne out by companies like Salesforce or, you know, um, trying to think of another example, but Salesforce is a great example of a company that's just kind of gone from strength to strength and continue to grow its revenue and growing into that revenue to generate pretty solid margins. What are the key metrics that you look for when you're, um, you know, assessing companies? Look, it's a good question. I guess from a financial metrics perspective, we look at all the usual things used to evaluate software businesses. And in a nutshell, that would be revenue growth, sales efficiency, profitability or timeline to profitability and unit economics. Um, it's probably, you know, I think some of some of your investor listeners will probably know some of these rules, but I'll go through them anyway. Um, we use the rule of 40 as a shorthand or a sort of forced stack rank of companies. Uh, the rule of 40 is when you look at projected revenue growth and ad- add the free cash flow or operating cash flow margin, and that has to equal at least 40%. Um, but you can also um, use it to sort of rank companies against each other. Uh, we also look for growth persistence. So the best-in-class software companies have a revenue growth rate for any given year that's at least 80% of the prior year. Um, then there's also sort of sales efficiency or payback on customer acquisition costs, which is looking at the gross margin from incremental recurring revenue on the sales and marketing spend on the prior quarter. So, for example, uh, Zoom has like 1.8 sales efficiency, which means a dollar of sales and marketing they spend results in $1.80 of gross profit in the next year. Um, so we kind of target, I guess, a payback period on that of, um, I'd say, about 15 months. Um, another metric we really like is net revenue retention rate. That's kind of um, looking to see how the current value or the current revenue of last year's cohort today net of churn and gross of expansion, so what that's um, generating in revenue this year. Um, And most quality SaaS companies are above 110% on that front. Um, But, you know, outside of, I guess, software, I really like to pay attention to metrics that others probably care less about. So I do things like look up glass door ratings of companies to measure employee satisfaction, or I look at net promoter scores pretty closely to see what customer satisfaction is like. And I do, I do look a lot at sort of ESG metrics. That's one of the big things we do at, at Grok. Um, I think many investors pay lip service to, you know, kind of caring about ESG but don't really delve into it. Um, I really like a fund in Australia called Melior actually, which assesses companies in the ASX 300 based on things like percentage of women in management or board positions or carbon intensity or, or whether they have a re- waste reduction policy or something like that. Um, I remember I was speaking to Julia Bailey from Melio and we were lamenting the fact that despite being on hundreds of earnings calls and in management briefings over the last decade, I don't think I can recall once um, where an analyst or investor has asked about ESG metrics or culture or retention of companies. So I think sometimes too much focus is on these short-term financial metrics. I really, really like that about what you're doing. I think that's fantastic because time and time again, you know, there's so much focus on the short-termism. You know, I love the fact you're looking at some of that stuff. It's really fantastic. I, I've read a bit about your background and also your keenness on, on um, you know, equality, gender equality and things like that, yeah. obviously the ESG stuff. So, you know, good on you. I just hope that... Um, 
more portfolio managers will uh, take notice of, of what you're doing on that front. We need it more. Yeah, yeah, I agree totally. So, what do you what do you look for in a company's management and the board? I mean, that's an interesting area as well. I'm curious uh, where you go in that area. Yeah, we we love founder led businesses. Obviously, um, I think founders naturally have a vision and communicate it um, because the business is is their baby. Um, I think a key trait of good management is a proven ability to make tough decisions, particularly on capital allocation and business direction. Um, you know, a great example is when Atlassian discontinued, they had a product called HipChat or Stride, which was uh, basically a competitor to Slack. And they could see that Slack was winning that space and just thought, you know, there's no point in us having a competing product that's not as good. So they they took the kind of, I guess, tough decision to shut that down. I like management that evolves over time in thinking. I think um, I was listening to a podcast recently which featured Daniel Ek from Spotify, and he put this well. He said that the jobs to be done change as a function of exponential growth. And Daniel, I think he said he was on job six or seven. He started as a product manager, then became an HR person, then a finance person to raise money. Uh, he now can't be in the weeds on a lot of things because Spotify has thousands of employees. And I think Spotify's evolution from, you know, music to podcasts has has been a pretty amazing journey to watch as well. Um, you know, and back I guess back to that point about hearkening to, to ESG metrics, I do really uh, like diversity of both management and board. You know, I want to see diversity of gender and race and, and sexuality and all of the above as I think it diversity of perspectives is really important in decision making and um, you know customers are, are diverse so you need management that's diverse as well. A lot of uh, software as a service businesses forego profits today to capture TAM total addressable market with the idea of eventually settling into higher margins and profitability later in the S-curve. What percent of these companies will never achieve their margin goals and are simply acquiring dollar of revenue for dollar ten of course. It goes back to that point about how I think that's something that really uh, investors really struggle with. I think given the unit economics of, of SaaS models, it can be difficult to ascertain that underlying margin profile. You know, as you just said, new business is expensive to acquire, but that repeat or renewal revenue is actually highly profitable. In a typical subscription model, you have high customer acquisition costs that are dilutive to margins and often mask that underlying profitability for some time. I think it was I think it was Morgan Stanley. They developed a framework they call the SAS X-ray, and I actually really like it. It um, allows you to kind of look through the high growth rates and into the underlying margin structure. So on average, a recurring revenue company will lose money on all the new business, but the combination of recurring revenue and high renewal rates will uh, basically make them pretty profitable over time. And the way the SAS X-ray works is it splits out the contribution margin of renewal business and new business by making some broad assumptions like 80% of total um, R&D and 90% of sales and marketing is allocated to new business, which I think makes sense. And then what it does is say, what could the steady state margins be if revenue growth slowed all the way down to say 10%, assuming nothing changes in the company's cost structure? of renewing the installed base and bringing in the new business. So, you know, you make an assumption around the renewal rate of the business based on maybe management commentary or, or targets they've put out, which gets you to an implied mix of that new and renewed. And then you kind of weight the contribution margins of the two areas 
to arrive at a steady state operating margin potential. I mean, there's a lot of guesswork involved in that, but it's kind of well worth doing to kind of, I guess, fight past that what is actual sustainable revenue growth. Um, And these numbers might have moved, but the last time I looked, the median listed software company has to pay $1.60 for a dollar of new business. But that new business, if it becomes recurring, has something like a 32% contribution margin. So they're willing to lose that money on new business acquisition, knowing they'll be able to break even on that customer in year three and make money going forward. And how do you ensure when you're investing in a company that they can eventually achieve high margins? Or does it not matter as long as they can grow? I think you've got to make an assessment of the market they're in and their position in the market. Um, And there's not really, you know, a hugely easy way to do that except to kind of just keep talking to customers and users of the product or potentially, you know, competitors and the like. Um, One of the things that I really benefit from at Grok is I have just access to a whole plethora of like founders of startups or developers, and often they're the ones that use the software of the companies we're looking at. I mean, a great example is uh, we share our, our building, our office space with a bunch of startups, and one of those startups is a email marketing company called Vero. And we were looking at a uh, stock called SendGrid, which is uh, kind of a transactional email company. So Um, It may sound simple, but if you send me an email, it's actually not guaranteed to get there. It's it's probably going to get there 99.99% of the time, and that's because of SendGrid. Um, The SendGrid Mm. kind of provides the back end of email. And this email marketing company, Vero, um, actually used a different product to SendGrid, but I remember speaking to him about, um, sorry, the founder of of that company, um, about SendGrid and, and, and asking him who the competitors were. And he basically said that SendGrid had won that space and will have always won that space. Uh, so we um, bought some SendGrid post, I think, their IPO. And not long after that, it was acquired by another company, which we also uh, own a lot of, which is Twilio. Some of these companies are a little. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, I, I'm too old. Like I'm 55. I just go, whoa, this is this is a good education. Oh, me. don't worry. I feel old sometimes as well. Like I <laughs> I was very late to join the TikTok bandwagon um, and now I can't get off it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, um, now we've, you know, we've covered off some of the more serious stuff, but, you know, how do you, how do you actually relax and switch off? I know that's tough for portfolio managers <laughs> like yourself. I mean, I read that you have a diverse range of interests and not enough hours in the day. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, definitely. I think time is the most precious commodity we own, really. Um, but look, I like to keep quite fit. Uh, I think I, I said I live in Bronte, so I, I, tr- I do try to do the coastal walk a couple of times a week. Um, I've run a couple of marathons, which probably doesn't sound that relaxing, but um, I really enjoy it. Um, I've done some obstacle races, although I think the last Tough Mudder I did, I tore my ACL, so I think my mud running career is probably over. Um, but I also do lots of dancing, gym classes, yoga. Um, I try to journal and I try to meditate, but I don't do either as often as I'd like. And I like to read. I read a pretty diverse range of both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, I'm trying to read uh, Norwegian Wood by Marikami at the moment. And I've been recommended a stack of books that are sitting in my Kindle, including um, These Truths by Jill Lepore, which is, I think, about the history of the US. And obviously, I read a lot of tech 
books as well. So there's one called The Innovation Stack by Jim McKelvey, who's one of the co-founders of Square, which digs into why Square beat Amazon when they essentially started the same product at the same time. How many hours a night sleep do you get? It doesn't sound like eight, seven or eight to me. but I, I really try to because I also read a book called Why We Sleep and it was actually quite scary in saying how much humans need to sleep in order to re, like rest and recuperate and recharge their bodies. So I actually do try to get um, a fair amount of sleep. And it's an interesting, across the Grok Ventures team, we actually have very different sleep patterns. So I generally try to go to bed around 10 ish and uh, I try to get up for sunrise most days so around 5 30 and then we have um, Jeremy in our team who has just had a kid as well so his sleep is not the greatest but um, (laughs) he he generally goes to bed even before the kid he'd go to bed at like 2 a.m and probably get up around 9 so we we have kind of we cover all the I guess time zones of the day probably good for Mike in that respect. Have you worked overseas? I mean, do you have any plans to live overseas? I mean, when things open up for a few years at least, given so much of the innovation is happening offshore or do you you get access to it from here? Yeah, look, I think COVID has potentially changed that in some ways. I used to go overseas uh, for a couple of conferences every year. Um, I think there's a, a Canaccord do a Boston growth conference that I go to and Morgan Stanley does a big TMT conference, tel- Telcos Media and Tech, um, in March every year. So I used to go to those two and then kind of um, catch up with companies and other fund managers and a whole bunch of people alongside of those conferences. But, yeah, as I said, I think COVID now, I probably actually stay in touch with people more so now because of COVID. Um, like I regularly schedule catching up with guys and I can get a bit zoomed out um, as much as I love Eric and and <laughs> and the company um, I do sometimes think oh god I can't do another zoom call but I yeah I think that I probably can do this job from just being in Australia all the time there is I definitely think face-to-face uh, particularly when you first meet a company like to build that rapport is a lot easier when you're sitting face-to-face with someone so I think I will want to try to to kind of do those trips again, but maybe, um, you know, maybe the need to, to do it as regularly is probably not as, as there anymore as, as it used to be. One last question. I mean, who's been your biggest inspiration and why? Is there one single person? If I had to choose one person, I, I would say my mum. You know, I can't possibly fathom how someone who didn't have the best English at the time does an accounting uh, degree at TAFE and then does a Masters of Commerce at UNSW all while raising three mm. children by herself. Mm. She also always encouraged me to do things to further myself. I actually I was having a conversation the other day with a friend and saying that I don't know if I was a natural go-getter from the beginning. Her favourite saying is, you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink. And I remember I used to like constantly bellyache to her that the government should do more to address the sorts of social issues we face in Western Sydney. And she actually got sick of that so much so that she found an ad in the paper asking for teenage volunteers for a committee that would advise the state government on issues facing young people. It was called the New South Wales Commission for Children and Young People's Reference Group. And so she, uh, so basically I joined that and then I joined many other government and non-government organisations like that, advocating for young women in Western Sydney on the issues we faced. Uh, I joined the Youth Action and Policy Association's Western Sydney Youth Forum, uh, the Parramatta Youth Jury Advising Parramatta Council. 
So I don't know, like I, I think I've always been pretty outspoken, but my mum has always helped me to find opportunities to use my voice, which has been like pretty inspiring to me. And also being on those committees and seeing how decisions were made, particularly in government, and how that was impacted by funding, it made me f- further realise that capital allocation is, I think, one of the most powerful influences in the world, which is why I decided, another reason why I decided to do investing. You know, she was also she was also very innovative at keeping me occupied. Um, I remember wanting to play computer games when I was younger, which she couldn't afford to buy me. So she was like, hmm, why don't you do the tutorials in Lotus 123? That'll be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> which was basically building spreadsheets, but I actually absolutely loved doing it. So I think I was always destined to do modeling in Excel, I think. She sounds like a truly amazing woman, I have to say. So what what is she doing now? What is she doing today? Uh, so she was an accountant at the Office of State Revenue, so the New South Wales government uh, for a while and the New South Wales Treasury. Now she works for the Department of, uh, I think it's called Wildlife Services, the Department of Parks and Wildlife Services, um, kind of going through insurance claims and helping the government deal with insurance claims. Uh, So she had her work cut out for her during the whole bushfire season, um, as you could probably imagine. Uh, But, yeah, she's she's fantastic. And I should say, like, in the investment world, the, the biggest inspirations that I have are, uh, some of the of Australia's kind of preeminent female fund managers um, and the ones that are, I find like truly inspiring are Kate Howard at Fidelity, um, Catherine Alfrey at Wavestone um, and Nat Tam and Michelle Lopez at, at Aberdeen as well. Um, they've been, um, oh, and Karen Tao and June Bailu from Tribeca actually. So they're kind of, um, you know, all of those women have been in the industry for as, as long as I have and, and much longer and, and they've been really good beacons of kind of what I can aspire to be, uh, you know, in the future. At Future Generation, we're always trying to encourage more younger investors. Is there any top tips that you've got there for younger investors? Any lessons that you've learned along the way? Because it's never too young to start investing in equities, but, you know, any any thoughts? Yeah, um, I think just have a voracious appetite for learning and, try to get your hands on as much material as possible. And the great thing about, you know, the world today is the internet um, has just so many free sources. Like we um, talk about podcasts before. I listen to so many investing podcasts that I absolutely love. And some of my favorites are Invest Like the Best, um, How I Built This, which is kind of about how different businesses got started. I think they actually featured Mel Perkins from Canva um, at one point. I think there's a lot of uh, kind of investing podcast in Australia to listen to. Livewire Markets does a really good one. Uh, there's a really funny one called Equity Mates, which is these two guys who um, they're about as like kind of Aussie blokey as as you can get. Uh, and they, I'm pretty sure they they didn't start from an investing background, and they kind of break down concepts into simplicity. So things like P multiples, they'll explain from kind of first principles. So that's kind of I'd say just. Just try and, um, you know, learn as much as possible. Thanks so much for joining us today, Amina. I just think you're an asset. I mean, I really uh, love your frankness, your openness. The journey so far has been fascinating. I mean, what you've overcome, I think it's truly exciting about where you're going to go from here on in. And I'd love to be doing something similar to this in 10 or 15 years' time to see uh, all those more barriers that you'll break down and you'll probably smash. So... 
Thank you again. I'm looking forward to the eighth episode of Conversations with Future Generation, which will be released in November. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Thanks again, Amina. Thanks, Louise.